Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello, and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. This is Riley Risto. I'm here with my co-host, Christopher Hurtado. It's good to be with you, Riley. And today we are welcoming a special guest to the program, Dr. Max Sterling. Mac is a new friend of the program. I uh, reached out through his daughter to find him after uh, reading one of his articles on Dialogue. So, Mac, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for being here. So, the article that you wrote on Dialogue was a Girardian article, and and we did an episode on uh, mimetic theory. And I could not find any connection with mimesis and LDS, except on Google, I found one name, and it was Max Sterling. And so I searched high and low. You have no social network presence. And uh, I I connected with you through your daughter, Carla, and was able to find you. I'm afraid I'm too old to have much of a social network presence. (laughs) That's all right. I'm just glad we found you and that you agreed to be on the program. So thank you for, for coming on. So, uh, Mac, maybe to start off with, let's have you introduce yourself to the listener by talking about the impact that Gerard has had on you, maybe professionally, spiritual outlook, other pursuits, and then we'll kind of... Do you want me to give any background about myself besides that? Please do. Okay. So, I'm originally from Southern Utah. I uh, went into medicine after graduating from BYU and uh, eventually became a cardiothoracic surgeon. I've uh, been active in the church my whole life, and while I was teaching the Volunteer Institute class in 1996, a friend of mine, Scott Burton, called me up and told me that I needed to read Gerard. And uh, so I took him at his word, and he recommended eventually a, a book uh, about Gerard first, Gil Bailey's book, Violence Unveiled. I read that book, and it changed my life. It, uh, as I've described to many people, when I was reading it, I felt like somebody had grabbed me by my ankles and turned me upside down and started shaking me. It completely transformed my way of thinking about God and uh, the Old Testament and myself. And I'll just piggyback on that, uh, Mac, and say, as Chris and I have confronted or come in contact with Girard and mimetic theory, it's done the exact same to us. It's one of those few times when I can say for myself that it's changed the way I look at everything. Perhaps Latter-day Saints are familiar with Covey's term, right? It's a paradigm shift. It certainly was that for me. I found um, Gerard's work very helpful to me uh, as a cardiothoracic surgeon. We are by nature fairly competitive. I think we have to be to get to become a cardiothoracic surgeon, unfortunately. It helped me to understand my medic rivalry with uh, my professors uh, and later with people who worked with me, and I think it helped me to become a better person, to relate better to others, to be less likely to 
inflame a rivalry unnecessarily. Can I ask if the reason why that's the case is because you recognized in yourself the increasing temperature of a rivalry starting to build and you were able to pull out of that situation? Or was it more an interpersonal type dialogue that you established to to I, deflame rivalry? I think it helped me in both ways, both to back off from inflaming rivalries and also to some extent to avoid entering into them or to set the stage so that uh, rivalry would be less likely to occur. I certainly tried to do that in my private practice where I worked most of my career with two other partners. Although we have recorded an episode, Riley and I read some books on Girard and we described Girard's ideas in our own terms, according to our own understanding. Now that we have you with us, we'd love for you to explain and to us and to our audience Girard's ideas. Yeah, if you can capture it in as much of a nutshell as possible, and then we'll elaborate via questions throughout the recording. So it's hard to summarize Girard in a couple of sentences. His thought really has three great areas. The first is uh, the idea of mimesis, that human desire is learned by imitating others. Everything that we learn comes from imitating others. And that this desire is coupled with an acquisitive instinct to obtain that which we desire. The problem is, is that when two of us reach for the same goal or good or status, rivalry and conflict inevitably occurs. And this can become very serious in a person's life if he person lets his life be consumed by the rivalry. When that happens, it's called a mimetic crisis. When the rivalry has taken over the life and you can only focus on the rival who sometimes seems to be so superior and you want what he has, and other times he seems to be bad or evil because they are an obstacle between you and what you actually want. So describe for us this phrase, mimetic crisis, in a little more depth. You mentioned you have desire and you have imitation. Now, those are exclusive, but how do they work together to lead up to a mimetic crisis? Are you trying to say that desire and imitation, and imitation are exclusive? Well, there's good imitation and there's bad imitation, okay. but desire, is desire ever good? Uh, I'm not sure. That's a question I have for you. The basic idea of Gerard is that we learn our desires from other people. Certainly, desire can be good or it can be bad, depending on what we're imitating. The goal, of course, is to find good models to imitate. The ideal model is, of course, God. We fall into the trap of imitating many bad models as we grow up in society inevitably. Isn't it the case, though, even if the desire that we have is good or for good, that it still can bring us in competition with others who want the same thing, and maybe we can't both have it at the same time in the same way, at least? Yes, I think that's an excellent point. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to differentiate slightly desire from imitation. Imitation is a, that's just a natural byproduct of, that's how we learn. That's human nature from the time we're babies all the way up. And I think desire is slightly different. And I think one comes from the other, but I think there is a distinction to be made because desire springs from spirit of, you might say, envy or jealousy or, or attachment. So I understand imitation as a basic human ability that I would call mimetic capacity, the ability to learn. It's part of us, part of what makes us human. Part of what we learn 
is desire from other people. Gerard would insist that we learn all of our desires from other people, and that with those desires comes an acquisitive element, naturally. Meaning we acquire and Any, take on or desire additional things. Meaning that we want to feel, fulfill that desire. Mm -hmm. That's the acquisitive element. Okay. If one leads to another, if imitation leads to our desires, what's the next step? The next problem is that in this world, there's a scarcity of things that are desired, and we come into conflict as more than one person reaches for the same good or status or kind of being. Now, is there anything inherent about value of that thing that's desired, or is it strictly imitation? If I understand you correctly, it's strictly, it's the imitation and seeing the other person desire it that gives it its value. That creates the value, yes. right? What's, what's the end or what's the hope that's offered? And this is a question I want to get to in more detail towards the end. But if every imitation leads to a desire, which leads to a conflict, how do we ever avoid conflict? It's always a constant cycle of mimetic crisis, right? It's a constant cycle of competing desires, which can easily lead us into rivalry. I believe that we all have experienced mimetic rivalry on some level or another in our lives. It's often low-grade. It's often dissipated by backbiting, scapegoating, or by walking away from the conflict. But I think we've all experienced it. It's an inevitable part of being human. This might require us to think through this for a second, but... When you look at the example of Christ on this matter of mimetic rivalry, what would he have done? How did he teach? What did he say on this? He set an example on the one hand by never being a rival with God the Father to teach us how to have relationships without rivalry, relationships that are based on love and self-giving, self-sacrifice instead of taking and sacrifice of others. Christ was fundamental. And so he actually took some of the scarcity and flipped it on its head and created abundance because he was self-giving. I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, he offered us abundant life, although it's hard for us sometimes to recognize that. Our concept of life often is different. It's having, possessing. It's acquisitive, right? Yes. It's the end of our desires is to acquire and own more stuff or have the mutual desire, whether it's a person, it's a skill or a thing. In the world so-called, taking advantage of this fundamental fact of human nature gives us advertising to play on our desires to sell us something and then is going to lead us ultimately into this kind of rivalry if we fall for it. Excellent. So, Mac, now that we understand what mimetic rivalry is and how natural that is for humans, how do we, I guess you could say progress, but not really. It's more like digress. How do we go from there to mimetic crisis, from mimetic rivalry to mimetic crisis? So, mimetic crisis, as I understand it, is an advanced form of uh, mimetic rivalry where it begins to interfere with your life and induces in you feelings of hate and envy toward the other person. When the mimetic rivalry completely takes over your life, where you focus much of your time and energy on it, then it becomes a personal mimetic crisis. 
And there's, is there typically an object of this envy and jealousy and hate and these things that you discuss? The rivalry can start over a particular object, but it advances beyond the object into the conflict itself, which takes over your life. And so what you want more than the object is to have the status of the other person that has the object. Where does that lead us then? Ultimately, what happens next? In an individual's life, uh, if he, if the person lets it go too long, it can lead to trying to damage the other person, uh, trying to sneak behind their back and sabotage them. In really terrible cases, it can lead to murder. Uh, on the other hand, if you feel like you cannot win in the rivalry, it can lead to you submitting to the other person and giving up, or it can lead, in the most severe cases, to suicide. Chris, you brought up advertising, and it seems like a sidebar, but it's not, because as you said, advertising becomes a force multiplier in this sort of individual mimetic crisis that, Mac, you're describing here, because all of a sudden, lots of people are having this same crisis. Yes, and uh, if the crisis spreads from one person to the next, a whole crowd of people can be become agitated and participate in, in a mimetic crisis at the same time. And it really only takes a model. It takes one person who is good at manipulating a crowd to get a second or a third person to move. And then all of a sudden there's a mob mentality. Yes. And when you have an agitated, angry mob, the situation is ripe for resolution with violence. Most of the time in our day-to-day lives, our mimetic rivalries never get that advanced. And uh, they are abated by backbiting and scapegoating. And they're held in check by law, by teachings of the great religion, by education, by common sense. We have all of these mechanisms in our culture to help keep mimetic rivalry in check. One of those that's mentioned by the author Luke Burgess in his book, Wanting, that was published, I believe, last year or the year before, he mentions that there's certain types of desires that we have that are just outside of the realm of possibility. And he puts those in a category all their own, and he refers to them as celebristan. So you want to be like a celebrity, mm-hmm. but you know you're never going to be Brad Pitt. So that's an unattainable desire. And so it doesn't really affect us in the same way, same way that a peer would who attained a certain status. So if I, Mac, if I went to uh, medical school with you and we were in the same town and we were competing in the cardiothoracic world to do more surgeries and get more business that way, we become mimetic rivals because of the fact that we're peers, that we're mm-hmm. close in whether we went to the same school or we're the same age or same profession. And you wouldn't have that same rivalry with you know, a Brad Pitt or someone who's a quote unquote celebrity or maybe even just someone that's in the same field, but just outside of what we see as our possible realm of achievement. And so it's it's really more kind of like localized at first. Yes. So mimetic rivalry in our daily life happens because people are close to one another on the same social plane as you just described. And Gerard actually has a special term for that that he calls internal mediation. Okay. In contrast to external mediation, where we are trying to imitate somebody that we cannot possibly hope to be. The problem in our current society is that external mediation has broken down. Authority has broken down. And so it's all collapsing into more and more internal mediation, therefore mimetic rivalry among all members of society, because external mediation no longer 
holds. So can you give us an example of the difference between internal mediation and external mediations? Well, you've already done it. You talked about me going to medical school and uh, competing with you. That is internal mediation. And uh, looking at uh, Christian Barnard and wanting to be famous uh, like Christian Barnard when you're a first-year medical student, that would be uh, external mediation. What's the, what's the function of mediation you're talking the mediation is the person who mediates a desire to you. So there's object, there's you, and the mediator. So the mediator is the person you're learning your desires from. This is very much in line with semiotic thought, right? Because there, semioticians will tell us there are three things in the universe, right? There are people, right? there are persons, those have an agency, right? There are objects, mm -hmm. and then there's the relationship between the two. Right. That's the mediation is the relationship. And tell us how right. that's broken down in modern society. Well, we no longer have as much respect for authority, for expertise, and perhaps some of that is deserved, but uh, nonetheless, it's true. Is the problem then that in today's society, we don't actually see the impossibility of the of the desire that we have to be someone whom we cannot be. Or is it more that we're free to be whoever we want to be more in today's society than they were in the past? For example, in medieval times, there was a rigid hier hierarchical structure. Here today, with democracy, it's a side effect that... Uh, that brings to me the question I wonder, you know, when I think about perennialist thought, they, the perennialists argued for that kind of traditional hierarchy in society. Yeah. And it's hard for us to understand in our position today and in, in our democratic way of thinking how that can be better. We feel like we've progressed, right? But they're pointing out this very problem, right? In ancient societies, there was a mediator of the sacred knowledge, of the sacred authority. It was, it was priests, it was learned doctors, and today we have available to us all of the collected wealth of wisdom and knowledge that's ever been created and stored on a simple Google search. And we just have to spend the time reading it is all, but it's available to everybody. Right. And that speaks to what you just said, Mac, about expertise, right? So we have, I remember Isaac Asimov saying something like, we have the idea in America, we're anti-intellectual, right? We have this idea that democracy means that my ignorance is as good as your knowledge. And that's going to lead to more and more conflict. I think so. More and more of my many crises. Yes. In our current times. I mean, this is, it's almost like there's a subtext of what we're describing here because you could apply this to the last three years so easily. There's a devaluing, for better or worse, for good reason or not good reason, of authority and expertise. Um, with, with the COVID-19 pandemic, it seems like, and regardless of which side you're on, the simple fact does remain that expertise has been devalued because of the availability of information that everyone has. So everyone became an expert. Some actually developed a certain level of expertise by putting dozens or hundreds of hours of study into the available information that was out there. And so maybe there was reason for it. And, and maybe the advertising aspect of things and trying to create a false desire for inoculation of society or whatever. 
or a non-falsifiable desire. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that might have devalued the authority too. There, there's all kinds of reasons why it might have happened, but the simple fact does remain that it happened. Yes. So, expertise, mediators, authority figures, they're being devalued. Yes. And so, it's likely that we will be heading for a crisis. Our mechanisms for avoiding a mimetic crisis, as I mentioned before, the law, education in common goods, common sense, religion. Uh, the, the, that fits in with laws, that, that, right? No, it's, it's even perhaps a separate thing. They, the teachings of the major world religions, I think all, all of these things are, are being eroded. And that, I think, is a good time to go back to the origin of culture now that we've gone to this point in the discussion. I think so, too. And I noticed, Mac, this time when you made that the list of solutions, mm-hmm. you left out scapegoating. Right? So maybe this takes us into scapegoating. In our current society, the law, to a large extent, has taken care of what scapegoating used to do for more archaic societies. So And so we can go to that. At least in the same way, right? We still do scapegoating, right? Meaning all the problems that we have, we're going to blame it on immigrants. We're going to blame it on Muslims. We're going to blame it on some other, right? But we don't have the kind of scapegoating that we had in antiquity, which we want to go into, right? And we should have covered this perhaps a, a little earlier. But in a, in a mimetic rivalry, the person in the mimetic rivalry always feels that uh, he or she is correct. And the other person is wrong or tends to feel that way, which leads to this idea of scapegoating, blaming the problem on the other person, which is a very common human tendency. We've all participated in it in minor degrees at work. So how did that develop? So how did how did we progress from just strictly blaming the other person in an internally mediated mimetic crisis? to this mechanism that was developed by societies, early on archaic societies, for ameliorating that crisis and preventing the spread, the contagion of mimetic crisis. How did we go from that that internally mediated crisis to this mechanism that's referred to by Girard as the scapegoat mechanism? All right, so now we're on to the second great idea of Girard, the origin of human culture and archaic religion. So he asks us to imagine a group of archaic humans without the law, without the teachings of the great world religion, without common education, without too much common sense, perhaps, as they develop mimetic rivalries, just like you described earlier with a crowd, a crowd of angry humans could easily form as one person imitates another one in his anger, all of them are involved in rivalries with all of the others, and without mechanisms to put brakes on the rivalries, they can all become more severe. So that's the destruction of that tribe, society, culture, whatever. It just escalates until it's a war of all against all. It becomes the Hobbesian nightmare, right? Yes, it ha- but it, it doesn't necessarily become the destruction. It would be, it would lead to the destruction if there was not a way to diffuse all of the mimetic hostility that's present in the group. So once again, Jordan asks us to imagine a group of humans where the temperature is going up and up and up, and there's all sorts of one person against another, a war of all against all, as you have said. And then he asks us to imagine that as the situation gets more and more difficult and intense, if one person imitates another person in his rivalry with a third person, then those two become unified 
against a third person, if another person imitates them and yet another, then it, that effect can rapidly snowball until the whole crowd can become rapidly polarized against one person. So this speaks to the effectiveness of mediators. And the more effective your mediator is, the bigger your crowd's going to be on your side to then victimize the other side. It's really a race. It's an advertising race. You're, you're trying to build a coalition for your point of view against the other point of view. It may happen that way, or it may not be entirely conscious. The one person may unconsciously imitate you in your rivalry with another person, and it may spread that way. There's a, an instance in the Old Testament that in his book, uh, in Gil Bailey's book, Violence Unveiled, he brings up with Elijah against the priests of Baal. Do you remember that uh, instance and, and how that develops into a mimetic crisis, uh, yes. a larger social mimetic crisis? Well, I remember that uh, Elijah um, asked to gather all of the priests of Baal together, and he basically set up a mimetic rivalry with the priests of Baal, which, because God consumed his sacrifice, showed him the victor, and then the priests of Baal ended up being massacred, presumably by the crowd. The Bible has uh, Elijah saying to kill them all, but uh, I'm not sure it happened that way. So that's, that's a mob frenzy that's created by a mediator. In this case, it's Elijah who raises the temperature of the crowd in his favor. That is correct. Against the, I guess you could say, the competing priests of Baal. Yes. So I would like to go back to the mob uh, killing the one person and look at the effects of that. Before the person is killed, the mob has been all against all, not unified. It's been filled with hate and envy and anger. As the mob becomes unified against the scapegoat, those things are not projected onto your rival, but they're all projected onto the scapegoat, the one person, and everyone joins in imitating that the rivalry with that one person. So he becomes the rival of all, and he embodies the evil, the hate, and the envy that the whole group is projecting. He seems evil monstrous, demonic, not human. And unconsciously, the mob, now driven to a frenzy, rushes on this person and kills him. In some scenarios, probably rips them apart, which shows up in Greek tragedy. That's right, in the Bacchae. Yes. You mentioned two times you said unconsciously. Yes. That's important here, isn't it? Yes. Why is that important? important? Our imitation in the first place is unconscious. It happens automatically. And the mob, I mentioned that it's not conscious of what it's fully doing as it moves against the scapegoat. They are at a, as I said, in a frenzied state, and they don't fully realize what they are doing. They are not conscious of what they're doing, and they no longer see the person that they are tearing apart, even as a human being. And that's something we do in war and conflict all the time. The vernacular we'll use in wartime, it shifts, it changes, and then it becomes a heightened version of what we do on an everyday basis where we we might refer with derogatory names to another group of people. Well, in a war, we won't even humanize them. We completely dehumanize them. We call them dogs or we refer to them as some derogatory term that takes the human element out of them to make it easier for us to then move to the next stage of the mimetic crisis, which is the killing. 
Right. In fact, it's probably impossible to be a good soldier unless you do that, unfortunately. Now, can I go back to the mob of the mimetic crisis that has just obliterated a victim? Before this, the mob was at odds with itself, and they could feel that something was wrong, that, and they, wouldn't, they would be unconscious of the fact that it was all in them. It would seem that what was going wrong would seem beyond their power. And then, as they, the victim is killed and torn apart, something else happens. This event stops them. It's gripping. And as they move together, they become unified. This unity is remarkable, gripping, and once again, seems beyond human power. It then seems like the victim maybe was good in some sense. So good and unity and harmony are perceived as flowing out of the victim. Let me ask why that is. Why, why do they perceive the victim as being good? Because they have changed from being all against each other, a war of all against all, to being unified and acting in harmony. And that is a transcendent experience for them. I think it's important. You, you said victim. They're not thinking of the person as a victim. I think we have to keep that in mind, right? Again, if we're, yeah. if we're not conscious that we're doing the scapegoating thing, right, mm-hmm. then they're not a victim. They're actually right. not an innocent right. victim, right? They're the right. cause of the problem. And now you're pointing out that because eliminating them solves the problem, they must be something. What manner of man is this, right? Yes. They must be something other than human. Right. The victim is transfigured on both sides. It's transfigured into a demon or a devil before the killing and after the killing into a giver of love, a god, a divine being, somebody sent by God, somebody sent by God to die. So for the mob, this is a transcendent event that seems beyond human capability, utterly beyond human capability, even though they did it. It came from God. It is divine. This is the origin of the violent sacred. In the mind of the mob, now, a sacred event has occurred. Because here we were in a crisis, we were about ready to destroy ourselves, and now we're in harmony. This is sacred. This is the creation of the violent sacred and the beginning of archaic religion. This is in contrast to the true sacred, of course, but this is... The origin of religion in Gerard's theory. He talks about founding murders. Yes, which we've just described. Yeah. And how it becomes a transcendent event because of the psychological projections of the humans in the crowd. Right. So over time, this invention, this adaptation Mm -hmm. to all-out violence that ameliorates that all-out conflict comes to be systematized. It becomes ritualized. This is the the idea of it is better that one man should perish. Yeah. Right? Than that everyone, the whole nation, right? So Gerard would argue that the very mind and language of man, as well as his culture, is created in this event. And so the logic has always been that it is better for one man to perish than everyone, or for one man to die for the benefit of all. I should mention here the three key elements of the archaic religion which come out of the spontaneous murder. Uh, You alluded to ritual, the other prohibitions, and myth. And briefly, 
the prohibitions are the bad behaviors that are thought to have been done by the scapegoat. Or the commonly desired good. So they might have a prohibition or a restriction on the thing that everyone secretly desires, whether it's some kind of consumptive thing or it's sexual in nature. It's always like prohibit that thing because that's the thing that we all secretly desire. Yes, that would be a source of, of prohibitions. In the early stages, it's the things that the scapegoat is perceived to have done, whether it be incest or adultery or theft or whatever, that results in the prohibitions. And this is all an attempt to prevent the group from descending once again into a mimetic crisis, which would lead to its destruction, potentially. The second element is myth. The myth is the story of this event told from the point of view of the crowd. And remember that the crowd did not understand, and it was not conscious of the fact that it was ripping apart a human being. It thinks that God sent the person, or God came himself to be killed, or a demon was killed who was also a god. They don't understand it right, and they tell the story from this perspective, this false perspective, that where they did not kill a person, maybe they person didn't really die. Maybe they just walked off in the myth, or maybe they went off a cliff and survived in the myth. Well, and many of the ritual elements that are created around this event call to mind this understanding of the demon god sacrificial victim, not victim, but, you know, the sacrifice that embodies both the good and the evil. And so after it's killed and all of their sins are forgiven in that act, the smoke ascending to God might be one aspect of, or ascending to heaven might be one aspect of the ritual that calls to mind this idea of the divinization of that act. Yes, that's good. So myth is the distorted view of the event told from the perspective of the crowd. Ritual, which you've been talking about now, is the crowd trying to recapitulate the original crisis and its resolution. As a reminder. More than just a reminder, I think, right? It, it actually, that's another mechanism that ameliorates the mimetic crises that happen within that society. So as the crisis begins to build from mimetic rivalry, they need a reminder that you talk about that that needs to happen periodically to then ameliorate the fervor and the, the temperature from mimetic rivalry. Now, this reminds me of what we talked about when we talked about Mircea Eliade's ideas uh, from the myth of the eternal return, cosmos and history, right? If it's just a reminder, then you're, you're going to the temple, as it were, to learn. But this is beyond that. Eliade is telling us we don't just go to the temple to learn. We're actually recreating the cosmos. We're coming out of chaos into order again. That's what the, the ritual does for us. So the original founding murder created their world created their mind, their psychology, their language, society, their society, and the ritual that comes out of it, which is a partial remembering, recapitulation of both the chaos and its resolution with the final ritual sacrifice, it maintains the structure of the society. It provides peace and unity to an extent in society. This gives humanity a space then to learn and grow and develop ever more complex institutions. You said in a sense, when does this break down? Why doesn't it really, why is it only in a sense? Why doesn't it actually work or continue to work? 
It's always unstable because it's founded on a lie. A murder. A murder. And a lie. Covered up by a lie. The community is perceiving itself as innocent, not guilty of the murder. When they do the ritual sacrifices, they are cognizant of the fact, of course, that they're killing a human being or an animal, if, if it should be animal sacrifice. But then it's not their fault because God commanded sacrifice. Thereby, they maintain their innocence. Right. So can we, at this point, move forward a little bit through the history of archaic religion? When did that begin to change? At least in the history that we have, let's let's talk biblical history. Well, first of all, if you look at the world, ritual sacrifice is found almost everywhere. And that includes human sacrifice, often followed by animal sacrifice as time develops. When does it begin to change? When do we see it begin to change in scripturally? You see it begin to change in the biblical revelation on the one hand. You can also see it begin to change to some extent in places like India, where as they evolved over time, their original religion was a sacrificial religion in the Vedas. And as they moved on, it became a transformed religion of contemplation and, uh, and, with, time, and with time devotion. Um, but there was but, always still and, a duty aspect, a Dharma aspect to that religion. Still and is, duty, yeah, yeah. yeah, Dharma seems to harken back a little bit to the things we have to do that we don't really like to do. It's sacrificial in nature, isn't it? I would say so, and, and I don't think it was ever completely overcome in Hinduism. But there were significant steps in that direction, and and also in in, in other of the the major world religions. But I believe that the most definitive overcoming of this archaic religion is the result of the biblical revelation. And this is the third great plank in Gerard's thought, the importance of the biblical revelation, which is to reveal the truth about the founding murder and ritual sacrifice so that we may eventually turn out of it. Now, Gerard does recognize, though, that not every story in the Bible is in line with this kind of change that we're talking about, right? So there are stories in the Bible. We begin to see stories where there's an identification with, with the victim, where you don't have the, the scapegoat mechanism doesn't work if we actually identify with the victim. But there are other stories where that's not the case. And so I think I wanted to bring up in this conversation the non-univocality of the Bible. I think it's important to understand that. Would you agree? It's critically important. Would you Gerard, elaborate? Yes, I will. Gerard would uh, see biblical revelation as a centuries-long attempt by God through prophets and ultimately in Christ to expose the scapegoat mechanism and to show the lie of myth, which is ultimately done by telling the story from the perspective of the victim rather than the perspective of the crowd. But this revelation is difficult to understand. Or accept. And accept. Because, as we said, our very psychology and our very culture were formed in this violence, and they've been maintained by ongoing violence. So it's difficult to accept. And so in the Bible, we see a chosen people's struggle uh, to receive this revelation. And Jesus highlighted this 
this struggle when he castigated the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees for being the same people that would have stoned the prophets. So he, he's kind of hearkening back a little bit, and he refers to these prophets that were killed. Well, why were they killed? Because they had a message that wasn't easy to accept for you know a society that was built on murder and this founding lie. That's certainly correct. Well, it, it highlights, too, what the role, at least in Christology a little bit, what is the role of prophets? It's to speak this uncomfortable truth in contrast to the founding lie. To go against the prevailing culture. Right. Yes. So before I was talking about how this revelation was uh, often rejected, sometimes partly understood, and sometimes partly understood and accepted, and sometimes fully accepted. And so therefore, in the Old Testament, we have a record, a priceless record of this people struggling with this revelation. And so we see groups in varying stages of grasping this revelation. One of the high points is the Joseph story, where he is cast out by his brothers, yet reconciles the whole family by love and forgiveness and truth-telling. Another high point in the Old Testament is the suffering servant of Isaiah, which, of course, we see and Gerard sees as prophetic of Christ, although perhaps in a different way than we see it. So in the Joseph story, we have the resolution of the family crisis and really the salvation of Egypt by self-giving, by love and forgiveness. We could look at another example where a sacrificial solution was used to affect unity. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai and all Israel was involved in idolatry, Moses came down, broke the tablets, and called whoever is for the Lord, come to my side. The Levites came, and then Moses, speaking for God, speaking in God's name, told them to go through and kill members of their own families. The Levites went through and killed 3,000 people. Apparently, well, and these Levites became the priestly class. Yes, it's even even worse than that. After they have killed 3,000 people and therefore brought unity with Moses by a sacrificial solution, Moses declares, today you have ordained yourself to the service of the Lord by your violence, and then they become the priestly class. The irony in that is so thick. Yes, but by having these different kinds of texts in the Old Testament, we see all of the the mechanism is gradually laid bare. Right. And you see it more as you go through the Old Testament and the later prophets start to reveal that it's not the priestly class that brings any kind of authority, righteousness, because they represent a culture of violence. The priestly class is there to not only enforce the violence, but protect the violent mechanisms through ritual. And just that's that's the mechanisms they use, is whether it's scapegoating or otherwise. Can we say, though, that at least, uh, we're, because we're progressing, right? It's not that they were all wrong, but they definitely weren't all right. Can we say that at least it functions in some sense the way that we think of government as having a monopoly on violence, that the priests have that monopoly, right? That's very well said. The priests controlled the power. Ultimately, all power comes from the people, but through this violent sacred, it becomes invested in the priests. And they, but there's always someone outside of that society, and these are where the prophets come in. And you've got someone crying in the wilderness, and he's, you know, he's usually just slightly outside the society, still speaking to the society. 
And there's at least enough people listening to it that he's adjacent. He hasn't been exiled completely, this prophet type figure. So what is the role of a prophet in a society like this? Sometimes they even become the victim, right? Of the of the sacred violence. Yes, if they call the people to repentance from their rivalry and their sins, they do often become the victim of violence. In the Book of Mormon, you have Samuel the Lamanite, and this is a great kind of visual for this process because he stands up on the the wall and he's shouting repentance to everyone and they're firing arrows at him, you know, or Abinadi uh, amongst the priestly class is maybe even a better exposition of this because he's slightly outside of that class. He's not one of the religious elite. He's amongst the religious elite with, you know, the wicked King Noah and all his priests and Alma included in that. And he's, he's crying repentance to those people. And what happens? He becomes the sacrifice. Yes. So as we progress through the scriptures, being referred to often by Jesus, and we get to the point of Jesus, and we should say John the Baptist as well, because he also fulfills this pattern as a prophet, as a truth speaker. We get to this point now when you've got John the Baptist and Jesus, and, and what takes place? Well, I would like to continue with Jesus, who, uh, again, in Gerard's thought, is the ultimate revelation of the scapegoat mechanism, the ultimate revelation of human nature, and the ultimate revelation of divine nature. So Jesus comes, he preaches love and nonviolence. He's unable to establish his kingdom that way because people do not respond by repentance and love totally to that message. And so in order to get his truth out, he hands himself over to a crowd, which leads to his crucifixion, just like victims through thousands of years, Jesus is killed by an angry mob, although there's elements of ritual, there's elements of law, all wrapped up in Jesus' death, as well as elements of a mob murder. All of these elements are there so that we can see how they function together and how they are all related. The thing that happens after Jesus' death, however, is that his death is told from the perspective of the victim in the Gospels. And so the Gospels more than anything else, function to destroy myth, the idea that the crowd is innocent and that the victims are guilty. And when he says, I have I've come to fulfill the law, he's essentially saying, this is the end of what you've created in your laws, in your religious laws, is this perpetual victimhood and scapegoating. And I've come to fulfill that once and for all. Or at least I've come to bring an end to sacrifice. I think that is clearer. Uh, Jesus yeah, fulfill that, sounds like divine, like almost divine purpose, doesn't it? Yeah. Whereas if you look at fulfill as being kind of the end result, maybe that's a better way to look at it. But you're, I like that, that you came to end the shedding, uh, end sacrifice by the shedding of blood. Right. Which the Book of Mormon very clearly teaches in Alma 34. Yes. It occurs to me to bring in maybe a little nuance, maybe problematize this a little bit, and maybe you can help us out of it. So it looks like because Jesus is going up against the priestly class, and he's going up against the myth, the lie, right, mm -hmm. that he is, what he's saying is troublesome for society. It can really cause a problem. And so he ends up being scapegoated. And yet, right, and yet at the same time, his story is going to be told by the evangelists from the point of view of the victim. 
this it's all coming together here in this moment, right? Yes, and this story will destabilize society. The society, which has been built on the scapegoating mechanism and on violence, and maintained that way even up to the present time. The violence of the crowd is behind our law. Is there a sense then in which we failed to understand what Jesus was up to? I think yes. To a significant extent, we have failed to absorb his message completely. I believe that it is sinking in as yeast in bread and will have its effect over time. But So I'm, I'm going to relate Jesus' message to the prophetic message. And the same thing that happened to the prophets where they were stoned and, and murdered for the message happened to Jesus. How is Jesus any different? And how does Gerard distinguish Jesus from just another prophet? Because there's certainly a distinction that Gerard makes. That's what I was getting at. There are a lot of differences between Jesus and the killing of victims in the past. In the archaic sacred, the victims became gods. They were deified by the myths in the minds of the men. One difference between Jesus and them is that he was divine before the mob violence, and before he was killed. He was divine before he came into the world. Another difference, I think, between Jesus and the prophets is a more complete understanding of the scapegoat mechanism, the violent underpinning of society, and his bringing about, in a way, his own death, in a way to reveal that more fully than any other prophet had done. And third, the Gospels, which are inspired by the Holy Ghost, which bears witness of Jesus, are the most complete revelation of the truth of the victim and the guilt of the crowd. So I see Jesus different in those ways. Maybe I'll problematize it a little, too. As I look at John the Baptist. I, I feel like he fulfills a lot of those boxes he just checked. Mm -hmm. He had a sense for his mission, which would have been divinely ordained, and he was a Nazarite from birth, right? So at least his family understood that this is an important person who's going to do something for this society. And so he lived that Nazarite life, and then he was the forerunner, and yet he was imprisoned as a scapegoat mm -hmm. and killed as a scapegoat. It was Herodias who danced to entice the crowd. This was advertising, right? And then had control over the crowd at that point and demanded the head of John the Baptist. But one significant difference that I, I see and that Gerard talks about is that Jesus was betrayed by all of his disciples. That didn't happen with John. Even after he died, he still had his his disciples that believed in his message. Jesus, actually, one of them as the younger uh, cousin. But the more important part is that Jesus came back. Would we have Christianity today if all the fishermen went back to their boats and all that stuff? No, of course not. And so it's the revelation of the resurrection which proves the truth of Jesus' message. I wanted to make another point. With respect to everyone abandoning Jesus, all of the apostles did. At least they ran away. But not all the disciples. <laughs> Some of the women, perhaps, did not run away. And Excellent point. Yeah. Now, what was your other question about? How does the resurrection prove the unveiling or the revelation that Jesus meant for the world? So we already have the evangelist writing the story from the point of view of the victim. Mm -hmm. That should be enough, isn't it? Why do we need the resurrection for this to really come full circle? So first I'd like to point out that Jesus' death was not entirely special in and of itself. He stepped into the 
same slot that victims of crowd violence had been in through millennia. What was special about Jesus's death on the one hand is that the story was told from the viewpoint of the victim, and then in the resurrection, we see God taking the side of the victim, thereby certifying the truth of the victim against the truth of the crowd, or the perspective of the crowd, which is myth. In restoring his life. In restoring his life. I see. And yeah. when he comes back to life, it restores the message for his apostles that had abandoned him, not only during the Passion, but after the Passion, when they went back to their lives as usual. It right. really kind of cemented for them that they needed to spread the message of God's approbation. As of, you've of, pointed out, it was women who closed the gap. It was. I don't think the apostles and even the woman, women fully got the message before Jesus' death. And they didn't really begin to perceive it until after the resurrection when they could look back and put everything in perspective. And so the resurrection was necessary for the understanding of the group, but also to give them the courage that they needed. Well, that's because there's hope in the resurrection. Yes. Hope not just for Jesus coming back to life, but all of us. So then I have courage to go out and preach this message, knowing that I'm going to be killed as a result of my preaching. But there is hope for a resurrection. There's life after this death happens. They needed, it seemed to me, one last kick in the butt to be kind of crass about it. He comes to them after the resurrection and says, what have you been doing? It's almost like you understood none of what I came here to teach and what I was all about. You've just gone back to your fishing boats. What are you doing? My very, the very last chapter of Matthew, I believe it's the last verse, talks about going out into the world and preaching the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And they struggled with that 10 chapters into Acts because they were only preaching to the Jews until he had, Peter had his revelation of the, the sheet knitted from the four corners to preach to all the world. Yeah. So that just shows you how hard the message is to grasp Absolutely. and preach yeah. and even describe. Yeah. One of the hardest questions for me in reading Gerard that comes up over and over, and I asked you this when we went to dinner a couple nights ago, is where is the hope in this theory? Because if we're constantly butting up against mimetic crises as a result of our desires, where is the hope in the message? And it seems to me that Gerard has pinpointed the resurrection as the hope. Yeah, I think you've answered your own question yeah. already, Riley. Well, I had a hard time with that till yeah. this. Until no, this, uh, I, I was with interview. you, you know, pre-show. I, I thought, I, I get it. There's, there's a sense of hopelessness until the resurrection. Gerard saw great hope in the resurrection, but he's also very worried about the future. He, he believes the uh, book of Revelation is prophetic in uh, many ways. So God's going to cause more violence? No, not in that way. Of course, from a Gerardian perspective, God does never, never causes violence. And we haven't talked so a great deal about that today. I should, I should mention that the first time I met Gerard, I asked him, do you think that God has ever killed anyone or, or ordered another human to kill somebody? He says, I don't know, but I don't believe so. And it would trouble me greatly if he had. Uh, he, he very much believed in a nonviolent God, and he has converted me. I mean, through reading him, I have been converted to that as well. So uh, let, I have to ask you now, because yeah. you're, you're a Latter-day Saint, Mac. Yes. We have these instances in our sacred text 
of God commanding violence. At least it seems such. And I'll leave it up to you to pinpoint what those are. You know which instances I'm talking. It does seem that way. I'd like to start with Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, it says that God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Yet, I think if we ask anybody in the church today, do you really believe that God inspired and motivated and led Nebuchadnezzar and his army to Jerusalem to kill, rape, and pillage and destroy that city? I think they would say no. Just as we learn to read Jeremiah differently, we should also learn to read all scriptures differently, which seems to say that God is violent. For example, in 3 Nephi, the text says, before Jesus appears in glory to the Nephites, as the Nephites are still in darkness, the text says, because of their wickedness, I have destroyed this city and that city, and I have caused the sea to cover that city, and so forth. So it shows to show responsibility uh, of God for the violence. But there are lots of reasons to question the apparent meaning of that text. One is DNC 19, where they're talking about eternal punishment, which seems to go on forever in the Book of Mormon. But yet God said, well, I let it stand that way to work upon men's mind for repentance. And then later on in the Doctrine and Covenants, we learn that hell has an end. Might it not be the same? here in the Book of Mormon. It's stated that way to help induce repentance, to help keep the Nephites later on in check, but that's really not the way it was. We've also dealt with this story on other episodes, both on this podcast and on our sister podcast, on our Come Follow Me podcast, and it's not actually clear in that story who's speaking. Right? We, we read it as Jesus speaking. It could actually be that it's the accuser. Right? The well, it's very clear that the voice is an accusing voice. Yes, exactly. So you could say that's an accuser. You don't have to say it's Satan per se, but it's definitely that's what an I mean. accusing voice, right? That's yeah. what you're getting at. Yeah. I lean against that being Satan's voice myself. I think it's rather God, an instance perhaps, of God speaking to man according to their language and manner of understanding perhaps to help induce repentance, as I mentioned a moment ago. And also, the fact that it's said when the Nephites are in darkness may be indicative of the first, the spiritual sensitivity of the Nephites, and also perhaps the, the spiritual sensitivity of that very sentence. Now, the darkness was part of our argument against Jesus speaking at the same time. Mm -hmm. Clearly, it's, it's open to interpretation. Sure. And so we would invite you to think about this, right? to think about it deeply and to consider, uh, to consider in the light of what we know about God in the revelation of Christ. And I think that's the key to interpreting all scripture, the Old Testament, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants. We look at Christ as the ultimate revelation of what God really is, a nonviolent, self-giving, loving God. With that and the Holy Ghost, that is the key to interpreting and looking at any scriptural text. So you go, th there's, there's that instance in 3 Nephi, but there's also the 1st Nephi instance. Is that something you want to talk about at all? So that's a great dilemma. Um, on the one hand, we have Nephi being told, he believes, to kill one man for the benefit of his nation. Just like Caiaphas said, Jesus should be killed for the benefit of his nation. 
the great question is, is whether Nephi was correct in his interpretation of the Spirit at that time. The text says clearly that the Spirit told him, and most members of our church are reluctant to question that. Nephi is, is revered as a prophet, as he should be. Yet when that happened, he was a young man. I don't think he was fully understanding of Christ at that time. He had not had his great visions, which uh, began in First Nephi 11. And so I questioned whether Nephi was correct in his interpretation of the Spirit. I would agree, Mac. And you, you've already suggested that is the case when it comes to all of the scriptures, right? And, we, and I've talked about the non-univocality of, of the scriptures, right? We see an unfolding, a gradual unfolding. God is revealing himself to us. Do we fully understand him from the beginning? No. We're still learning. We're still coming to an understanding of the nature of God. It helps if we look to Christ. And we, we've said many times on our podcast and our sister podcast that if we look at the scriptures and what the outcomes of many of these societies are, it's, this is not a great story to tell. It's, it's really destructive. It's, it's a tragedy. There's no comedic elements here. Everything fails about it. But if you read it properly as an arc, especially the Book of Mormon, because that's a literal chronological arc, you see the outcome of basing a society on a founding murder. And that's the great lie that Gerard has exposed, I think. That's a big contribution to a correct understanding of the nature of God. The Book of Mormon arc, right, that shows us ultimately that this philosophy, that this idea that's put forward that it's better that one man should die. It doesn't work. It well, it doesn't ends work in a war end. of all against all. Yes, it does. And that's like the ultimate apocalypse, if you want to put it that way. That's, you know, it's yeah. an unveiling. The Book of Mormon's every bit as much an unveiling of what sacred violence does to societies. And, and Gerard is afraid that our society will lapse into that as well. Having had the revelation of Christ, if we reject it, the Christ revelation has destroyed the old mechanisms for peace, scapegoating, ritual sacrifice. Those are all going to be gone. If we don't repent and love and forgive, the same thing will happen to us as happened to the Nephites. So to wrap up the conversation, here we are a couple thousand years on. Much of the world has rejected Christianity, nominally at least, and it looks like has accepted the identification with the victim. And we've come to a point in our society where maybe that's actually, we've gone too far. The, the pendulum has swung too far because now the, there's a corruption in the sense that the victim becomes, the victim class becomes somewhere where we want to go into that class, be a part of it so that we can gain some benefit for ourselves, right? Yeah, it's interesting that you say society has largely rejected Christianity because actually, They've accepted one of the fundamental tenets of Christianity, which is this identification with the victim. However, they've rejected the Christian message about violence. That's what I mean. Right. The true Christian message is concern for the victim. And as that has penetrated, people have had more concern for victims to the point now that sometimes being a victim is a favorable, favorable status. But it's a corruption of Christianity to exploit that and to try to get victim status, to claim victim status, to gain a... Only to, gain to help you in to your meta rivalry, right? right. To, to gain a benefit for yourself. That's a corruption of Christianity and a corruption of what Jard would like right. us to understand. So what is, if we were to kind of wrap up 
and we want to ask, what is the Christian message then? And where do we go from here? The essence of the Christian message, in my view, is that rather than sacrificing other people for our benefit, we should learn to give of ourselves, sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of others. That is the Christian message. And it's my belief that anyone who does that is in some sense a Christian, whether nominally a Christian or not. I think that's a great place to end it. And we want to thank you, first of all, flying out here and and spending some of your time in Utah with us. And Christopher, thank you for flying out here from California to to meet in person Max Sterling and visit some other friends and be here with me. And it's been a great experience to get to know you a little bit, Mac, and we look forward to doing this again. Certainly, there's so much more to Girardian theory and mimetic theory that we can plumb. We can really go deep with this. But this has been a great introduction for our audience. And I think it'll push them to want to learn a little bit more. I hope so. It's been so helpful to me in my life to understand the scriptures and to understand society and to understand myself. It's been a pleasure to get to know both of you, and I'm so happy that you care about Gerard as well. Well, it's a relatively new thing for us, but it's been tremendously beneficial for us as well. It's likewise been a pleasure for me to meet you and to be here with you and and Riley. Well, we thank you, the audience, and we thank all of our team at Latter-day Peace Studies, and we hope you have a great week.